Well, for the scripture reading a few moments ago, I read from Ephesians 5, and that's the text for this morning. And uh, we need to realize as we get started this morning, and as I prayed a few moments ago, that the scripture is sufficient for us. It's really all we need to have clear direction for even the most difficult issues of life. And this passage this morning you are perhaps familiar with, and uh, it gives us uh, direction for what our marriages look like, and perhaps you think that's the main point of the passage, um, but as we will find out shortly, it's really not the main point of the passage. There is certainly direction there for how marriages should work, and after we step through some of this passage, um, I want to uh, take a slight diversion and uh, make some application about some, some real issues in life that uh, may have affected you already, but at some point will affect you one way or another. So it, it's good that we, first of all, realize that Scripture is sufficient. It tells us how to live as God intended, but then it also um, gives us the direction we need, the information we need to step through the gnarly issues of life. And uh, I'm sure you've all realized that there are gnarly issues. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 5, I already read the passage, so I won't do that again. Um, and you are uh, perhaps thinking that uh, this passage is mainly about marriage, but let's do something different this morning. Skip over to the end of the passage and look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, the word mystery here that Paul uses identifies some hidden reality, hidden in the past, that is, in the Old Testament times, and revealed in the New Testament age, and now is written in Scripture. And really what Paul is saying here is that what he's described here about marriage in the preceding verses is a reflection of the magnificent and beautiful mystery of the union between the Messiah and the church, which was completely unknown until New Testament times. And so this passage is mainly about Christ and the church. This passage is mainly about Christ and the church. And then Paul goes on in verse 33. So in verse 32, he says, there's a mystery here. I'm talking about Christ and the church for what I've told you here. But in verse 33, he says, however, this applies to husbands and wives too. By the way, he's almost saying this is, this is a secondary meaning almost. Everything I've said does apply to husbands and wives, but don't miss the real message here that this is about Christ and the church. And we'll see that as we step through the passage over and over again. He refers to Christ and the church. And I hope this morning that I can, I can link those two together so you see what Paul is talking about here. And you see that really the most magnificent part of marriage, and there are many wonderful things in marriage that God has given us to enjoy, but the main thing about marriage for the Christian is that you are putting on display in your marriage 
the beauty of Christ and his church. And if you miss that as a Christian, you've missed the whole point of really being married. And uh, I, I make, make it very clear when I'm counseling people before they get married, you have to realize that what you're doing here in getting, getting married is not uh, marrying your best friend, although that's great if you're doing that. It's not that you're, you're enjoying being together. It's not that you've found this young man that makes you laugh and makes you feel good, and so you're going to marry him. But you realize that you're going into this because you are putting on display Christ and the church. And that's what your marriage is going to represent to the world around you. So it's really a pretty sobering thing. It's, it's a far cry from what many people understand marriage to be. So let's, let's step through the, the verses here and, uh, and see what Paul has to say about Christ and the church and, uh, and also what he has to say about husbands and wives. Now, as, as we get started here early in the passage, I, I also have to comment that unfortunately, especially the initial commands to wives here have been some of the most misunderstood in the church throughout the ages. And it has been a, a real blight on the church. For the men who think that this uh, gives them some domineering, authoritative position over their wives, uh, you've missed the whole point of the passage. E even the part that pertains to husbands and wives. And I hope to clear that up for you today so we understand uh, how marriage is truly supposed to work. And coming away from it, we, we should all be walking out today saying, if we're married, I have a lot of work to do in my marriage to meet the standards here, realizing that at stake here is the picture of Christ in the church. I hope if you're not married, but you're looking forward to being married someday, this doesn't scare you away from marriage because it's a great privilege, but it is a very high calling. And we can't miss, miss that. And we can't just stumble blindly into what God has designed marriage to be. Um, so uh, this, this passage um, is really going to fly in the face of our culture because, as you know, our culture uh, exalts feminism in our day. It exalts independence. It exalts climbing to the top and being king of our own little world. And that is just about exactly opposite of where this passage is going to take us and the understanding we should have here. Um, there are some uh, aspects of the marriage relationship that I want to clear before, clarify before we even get into the verses here. And I'll do that within the broader context of the New Testament. And the words that we need to remember here that permeate the whole New Testament and this marriage relationship business are mutual submission and servanthood. Mutual submission and servanthood. Mutual submission means submission on both sides of the marriage, right? The husband and wife are both submitting. And that's where the passage will take us. Mark 9.35 says, Jesus speaking here, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
Luke 18, 14 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's just a very small sampling of what is a consistent command throughout the New Testament and it is what? Humility, right? Humility, servanthood, putting others first, and the marriage relationship is no different. In fact, it should be the, the supreme example of how that works. If you're taking notes, here's something you should write down. Submission is a general spiritual attitude that is to be true of every believer in all relationships. Submission is a general spiritual attitude that is to be true of every believer in all relationships. That's what we need to be all about. That's what we need to be thinking. That's what we need to be consumed with is having this attitude of submission. Um, by the way, if you've ever noticed a police car, one of the most common inscriptions painted on the side of a police car is to protect and to serve. You ever notice that? To protect and to serve. Some years ago, um, I, don't, I forget exactly what it was, but the Grand Rapids police chief was, was speaking to the group that I was in, and he said, we've, we've uh, decided to change what we put on the side of our Grand Rapids squad cars. We're going to put on the side of our cars to serve and protect. Not protect and to serve, but to serve and protect because we want to emphasize being of service to the community. And this was, this was a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. And so this week I was looking for a Grand Rapids squad car and I finally found one. Fortunately, they don't follow me around <laughs> waiting, waiting for my next slip up. And uh, the squad car I found says, serving since 1891. Well, that didn't tell me if they still are trying to emphasize service, but, but what a great thing if they could pull it off. Um, but really, a police department is never going to produce the kind of servanthood that Scripture is talking about here because it's only possible as we're living a spirit-filled life. And then we are able to serve each other. And, and really, that's, that's where we need to pick up our understanding of of uh, this relationship between husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, wives have traditionally received the brunt of Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, although the greater part of the passage deals with the husband's attitude and responsibilities to his wife. And in fact, Paul devoted twice as much space to the husband's obligations as to the wife's so that should give us a clue here about what's truly going on. But let me read um, again for us 21 through 24, and then we'll, we'll uh, unravel a little more detail about what this is about. Um, by the way, you, you understand that uh, chapter headings and verses and the little subheadings that divide up your Bible were never inspired. Those are just things that the translators threw in there to try to help us. And unfortunately, and in this case, there's 
at least in the ESV that I'm using this morning, there's an artificial division between verses 21 and 22, which uh, creates a break in our thinking, which really shouldn't be there. Okay, so that's why I'm going to start reading with verse 21. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice that Verse 21 here is, is really very important and sets the context here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then he goes on with some detail. And so right off the bat, verse 21 would be normally read as, well, this includes husbands and wives submitting to one another. This isn't a one-sided story here where it's only the wives submitting. It's husbands and wives submitting to each other. Um, the word here, we need to understand uh, a little bit of Greek here to really understand. The word submit here, hupotasso, meaning to line up under, to get in order, to be arranged. It speaks of ranking. It doesn't really speak of submission as we think of it, as someone who submits being being a lesser value of someone that needs direction you know that line of thinking that's really not what submission is talking about at all here as christians this idea of being arranged lining up under it should govern all of our relationships philippians 2 3 and 4 says with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So again, this mutual submission idea comes into play here. Submission is not a one-way street in marriage. Submission is not a one-way street because the husband and wife are each seeking to put the other first. That's what mutual submission is all about, right? That's what mutual submission is about. Now, I found, uh, I, I'm not a Greek scholar here, but I found a literal translation of verses 5, 21, and 22. You realize that the translators took the original language and then they massage it to give us the essence of what was said. But we have different verbs. Well, we have all different words than was originally found in the Greek. And so... You know, literally a word-for-word -word translation typically doesn't make much sense to us because verbs are left out in the original language. But let me give you a, a, what is close to a literal translation of 21 and 22 here to get, the, get a, a better picture of what's being said. It would literally say for us, submit to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's what 21 and 22 literally say. It gives us a stress here in the passage clearly on mutual submission as hopefully you're already getting the picture. Everyone in the church is to submit to everyone else. Right? Everyone is to submit to everyone else because we all minister to each other, right? 
I mean, that's just what makes the church so unique, and that's what makes the Christian marriage so unique. So the question is then, just to make it very, very clear here then, the question is then, does the husband then need to submit to his wife? Yes, of course. Of course, that's part of the mutual submission, right? Everyone's submitting to everyone else. And in fact, uh, verse 25 uh, is very interesting for us because notice the command here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now, if this, if this were a, a passage that was emphasizing that the husband is ahead, wives need to submit, end of story, wouldn't you expect Paul's command here to be something different than love your wives? Notice the, the verse 25, the, the command in 25 doesn't say, husbands, take authority over your wife. It doesn't say rule over your wife. It doesn't say order her around. It doesn't say command her. It doesn't say subjugate her, subject her, dominate her. It says love her. It says love her. Isn't that interesting? This verse describes the kind of love and devotion Christ showed for the church. In fact, it says here, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's what you're consumed with. You aren't consumed with establishing some kind of authoritarian rule. That's not the point at all. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you view your wife as being so precious that you would sacrifice yourself to save her without a second thought? That's the kind of love that's being commanded here by Paul. So in the end, everyone in the household has a duty to submit at some point and in some specific way to everyone else. Yes, wives must submit to the leadership of their husbands, but husbands must bow to the needs of their wives. Certainly children need to obey their parents, but if you are a parent, you know that you also end up serving and sacrificing for your children, right? That's just the way it happens. And of course, servants need to yield to the authority of masters, but masters are commanded to treat their servants with dignity and respect, esteeming even the lowliest servant better than themselves. In other words, Paul commanded each Christian here to be an example of submission and service to others. Each Christian is to be an example of submission and service to others, and that simple principle is the key to harmony and happiness in the home. Let me, let me read it again. You want a happy home? You want harmony in the home? Each Christian is to be an example of submission and service to all others. That makes the home what God intended it to be. Now, domineering men who've used Ephesians 5 as a club to keep their wives in a kind of servile submission have missed the whole point of the passage. And if you are a wife who has been subject to that on behalf of all men in the whole world, I apologize. Because that is not what God wants. That is not what the passage is teaching. 
Even if God has given you a position of leadership, you have a duty to take the role of a servant because that is precisely what Christ did for you. Right? That's what we read. So, this whole passage here, uh, really, and Mr. Zarin referenced it this morning, really the, the final three chapters of Ephesians are, given all the doctrine that Paul gives us in the first three chapters, the last three chapters tell us how to live. We have all this correct doctrine up front that directs us how to live with the last three chapters. And so we're talking about a spirit-filled life here in the last three chapters of Ephesians, and particularly in the marriage and in the home, Paul is really telling us what every obedient Christian should be doing in terms of their marriage, how their home should look, how they should be living here. Every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. Is a submitting Christian. The husband who demands his wife's submission to him but does not recognize his own obligation to submit to her distorts God's standard for the marriage relationship and cannot rightly function as a godly husband. Did you get that? Men, if you're thinking this is a one-sided thing, you cannot be a godly husband. It's impossible. This, this is pretty important stuff for a marriage. So the husband and wife must practice mutual submission where each esteems the other as better than himself, never inferior to self. The principle of mutual submission permeates both the family and the church so that in some sense, every family member as well as every Christian should be, as it says in Romans 12:10, devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to another in honor. Men, giving preference to your wife in honor. Wives, giving preference to your husband in honor. What a beautiful picture of marriage, right? And, and really, marriage is the only place where this is going to happen in, in such a perfect setting. Because you're both doing this. And we're going to do it to a lesser extent within the church, all the other relationships, but the marriage is where it's really going to happen. Now, before I continue on here, um, don't miss, as I've been reading, I've been talking about husbands and wives here. Remember, this passage is about Christ and the church. And really, that, that's throughout the verses here. Let's go back again. Even verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Here we go. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Then verse 24, now as Christ submits to the church, so wives also submit in everything to their husbands. You see how Paul, Paul continually brings the church and Christ back into this. Because this, this is the main purpose of him going into detail here on husbands and wives because this is such a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. Think for a moment, you know, we would all say that we want to obey Christ as his church. Can you imagine if the church said, no, I don't think I want to obey Christ? Well, actually, there's lots of churches that are doing that when they reject his word. You know, hopefully here, uh, well, 
as long as I'm here, I'll leave if it ever changes. You know, we want to obey God's word, right? We, we say we are in submission to his word. And it should be just unbelievable that we would ever do anything else. And that's the picture that's being painted here. And even down in verse 27, after he's talking about husbands, love your wives, he goes on, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Again, the parallel here, Christ and the church, the relationship between Christ and the church pictured in the marriage. So what, what does it mean here? Talk to men here for a moment. What does it mean to be head of the home then? You, you are given some leadership responsibilities. What does that look like? Well, I've already mentioned marriage is founded on the principle of mutuality here. Marriage is truly a partnership. Marriage is composed of a man and a woman who are spiritual equals, but have been assigned different roles by God. And that, I think, is very obvious to us. It should be obvious. Men are typically more of a protector. Women are typically more of a nurturer. I know that my children, when they were small, were very glad that I was not their nurturer. <laughs> that would not have turned out well, but I was there to protect them. You know, different roles. And there, there is, are much more regarding the roles we could explain there. But I, I have two things I want to emphasize here in terms of biblical headship. And the first part of this is spiritual leadership. Men, we are called to be spiritual leaders in our home. What does that look like? Well, if there are questions about doctrinal issues, men, your wife, your family, they should be able to come to you for answers as the first stop. And they should be able to get most of the spiritual answers they're looking for from you. If there are conflicts that are happening anywhere in your sphere of influence, whether it's uh, work or school or in the home, you should be able to give spiritual counsel in resolving those conflicts. That's spiritual leadership. That's the kind of love you'll be showing your wife is being able to guide in those ways. There are also then, secondly, duties that go along with biblical headship, duties such as care and nurture and protection and self-sacrifice. In fact, look at verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Uh, in particular, look at what, the, what verse 29 there says, nourishes and cherishes, nourishes. Men, are we nourishing our wives? Are we providing them the food they need for their own spiritual growth? And do they truly feel like a cherished part of the relationship? Think about, uh, you know, it's, that's not a term that we use very much anymore, something we cherish, because we're such a disposable society. 
something, something starts to look a little tattered, we throw it away and we get a new one. But just think about, think about if you had, you had this gold vessel that was fashioned, let's say, in, in New Testament times, and it was pure gold and it was refined and it was, it was big. So this is worth some dollars here. And you had that and you cherished that. What would you do with it? Would you put it out in the front yard and throw some flowers in it? Probably not. You would probably put it on the mantle or, or better yet, you would put it in a safe. Wait a minute. You'd probably build a room on your house that was equivalent to Fort Knox and put that in there because you cherished it so much you saw its value and its worth, right? Husbands, that's how we're called to cherish our wives here and nourish them. This is, this is what's tied up in this idea of biblical headship. God-ordained roles in the family have nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Many wives are smarter, wiser, better educated, more disciplined, more discerning than their husbands. God has nevertheless ordered the family so the man is the head because the husband owes his wife self-sacrifice and protection. The wife is not relegated to an inferior role. Rather, she is a joint heir who shares in all the mutual richness of marriage. The husband and wife belong to each other and have unique responsibilities to each other, which they do not have to anyone else. Wow, what a beautiful picture, right? By the way, uh, don't miss out on verse 22 where it says, Wives, submit to your own husband. Your own husband. This is, this is strictly husband and wife. Ladies, you, you don't submit to any other man in the church. In fact, uh, the elders of this church have no authority over you except being obedient to Scripture, which is what you want anyway, right? You want to be obedient to Scripture. This, this is strictly with your own husband. If, uh, and again, to the men here, if your wife is more skilled in an aspect of operation of your home, let's say she's better at managing the household budget than you are, you would be a fool not to delegate that to her. And many other areas like that. If your wife has a strength in an area, you better let her do that. But if it goes sideways and it goes down the drain, you are the responsible party. You take the responsibility. That's part of loving and being a servant and the mutual submission to each other. That's what you're called to do. Well, this is a little bit different than just wives submit to your husbands, right? when we start understanding what Paul really intended. By way of illustration here, consider the shepherd and his sheep. Think about a shepherd and his sheep. Christ is often portrayed as the good shepherd. Think about how he functions as the good shepherd. Kindness, gentleness, caring, protecting, nourishing, always with the best interests 
of the flock in mind, willing to lay down his life if need be. By the way, I'm describing you husbands. This is the picture here. You are the shepherd. You are the really in charge of the flock, right? How do the sheep respond? Wives, this would be you in the illustration here. They flourish under the care of the shepherd. They willingly follow because he, they know he will care for them. He's proven that again and again. The pastures are great. The water is always good. If they get lost, he'll come looking. The predators are kept away. What a beautiful relationship, right? And I think maybe that helps us understand what should be going on with husbands and wives here. Well, a question comes to mind then, for me anyway, perhaps for you too, and that is, well, why don't our marriages look like this then? What Paul has described. Well, I've come up with five reasons here that I'll lay out if they're helpful in thinking through this. First of all, we need to be taught, and once we're taught, then we need to be reminded because we all forget. And so if, if this is new information to you about uh, how Ephesians 5 really relates to Christ and the church and marriage, well, now you've been taught. Now, now you've learned what God expects here. But this, that isn't the end because we all forget, so we need to be continually reminding each other how things are supposed to work. And when, when they don't work and we start get, getting a lot of conflict going, maybe in our marriages, then we need to, to look to someone in the church to remind us and help us see things biblically so we get back on track. And we all need reminders. Don't feel bad if, if you think that, oh, my marriage, you know, a day or two goes, and then, then after that, oh, it starts to unravel. Hey, everybody's in the same boat. We need to be reminded. And we are here to re help remind each other. Number two, on why our marriages don't look this way, we are proud and our pride gets in the way. It is not a normal human response to be of a submissive attitude. The world is continually telling us we need to be in charge, right? We need to be on top, we're the best. I mean, uh, little League Baseball games, they won't even give out a second-place trophy. Everybody gets a first-place trophy because we all are told we have to be on top. And even, even within the church, we start believing that because we're bombarded with that uh, from every direction by our culture. And so we, we are proud. The antidote to being proud and letting our pride get in the way of allowing our marriages to function like they should, the antidote is to bathe our minds every day in Scripture because that helps us think rightly. We need to be thinking rightly about this continually. Number three on why our marriages don't look this way is we are influenced by the world and our culture. In fact, the word submission conjures up ugly images and even uglier reactions in our liberated modern culture since our culture now is concerned with uh, making this word seem like weakness and defeat and oppression and victimization, and the world is seeking a sexless, classless, artificial equality that totally misses the beauty of God's design here. And we just need to realize that that is, is all false, and we need to be setting it aside. 
And it's going to get harder and harder because our worldview continues to deteriorate. It gets worse and worse. Uh, it wasn't that many years ago that it was obvious that if we're talking about marriage, we're talking about a man and a woman, right? Today, I would have to be explicit and tell you that we are talking about a man and a woman here because many people in our culture have other options that they think are legitimate. We have not moved in our biblical position, but the world continues to move further and further away. So this will become harder and harder to have a biblical marriage, right? Number four on my list of why our marriages don't look like this is addressed to the men. And I think of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul says, act like men. Act like men. Men, you need to lead and love and nurture and provide. One pastor asked this question, why would a wife want to submit in any way to someone who has the spiritual makeup of a potato chip? We need to be the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be. We need to make it easy for our wives to line up behind us as God has designed. Men, if your wife is not delighted to follow your leadership, chances are you are failing as a spiritual leader, and that's why she's having difficulty. In other words, maybe you are the problem. We need to be serious about being spiritual leaders in our families. Ladies, before you line up behind me and try to elect me to office, I remind you of Genesis 3.16. You also can have your part in this being a problem. Genesis 3.16 says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To obey God's design for the family is not where your human reason will take you. This is not logical human thinking that will help us understand the marriage relationship. The Genesis passage, the reference to the curse that is part of what comes to women because of sin entering the world is that we don't like to submit. None of us do. Women, you don't like to submit to your husband if you're just going with how you feel. Again, God's word is the antidote here. It helps us understand that this is not the world's program. Um, Pastor Graff had an interesting, a very brief quote last week. He said, submission precedes knowledge. If you haven't quite figured all this out yet, obey scripture and let the knowledge follow your obedience. Okay? You, you obey in what you know scripture to say and then figure out all the details as God shows them to you. The question is, what is your attitude about all this? Do you really believe God has laid out the best plan for humanity in his word? If you do, then you obey it, even if you don't fully understand. Submission precedes knowledge. So all this that I've been talking about paints a picture of Christ and the church. Christ is the perfect bridegroom. Our marriages are to represent the relationship of Christ and the church to an unsaved world. The imagery of a shepherd should be evident in our lives, men. 
The imagery of a contented and trusting flock should characterize your lives, wives. Do you see why marriage is held in such high esteem in Scripture? I mean, this, this picture of Christ in the church, we just can't escape that. This is what is put on display for a watching world. Unfortunately, Christian marriages, they're really viewed as no better than marriages outside the church in our day and age. And it's because we've, we've lost sight of what Paul is teaching here. Well, I've just answered the question here for us. Aren't you glad that I answered the question? You're saying, Tim, what was the question? I must have dozed off there. I missed the question. Well, the question is, why does God hate divorce? Why does God hate divorce? Malachi 2.16, famous verse. Scripture says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord Almighty. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. So the answer to the question that you've already heard is divorce destroys the image of Christ and the church that your marriage should be putting on display to the unsaved world. That's why God hates it, right? The main purpose of marriage is this relationship that is unlike any other. It's, it's showing the world what Christ and the church are like and if you destroy that with divorce, no wonder God hates it, right? I mean, it should be obvious to us. Well, here's where we start unraveling some of the gnarly issues of life. So is this the final word on divorce then for Christians? This would be viewed as the, the permanent view. There are theologians, scholars, pastors that would say, no divorce ever under any circumstances. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 16, 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. But we need to consider the whole of Scripture and all the instruction that we're given there. And Jesus also says in Matthew 5:32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So do we have uh, some irreconcilable differences here between two passages of scripture? I mean, which way do we go? Some people take the view that well, when there are two passages here, and, and I get uh, some alternate reading here, so I'm going to take the I'm going to be safe and take the more conservative one. So no marriage or no no divorce ever, and I'll just I'll just park there. Well, that doesn't really give a, help us out in understanding. Well, why would Jesus say except in the case of sexual immorality? You know, I I, I want to understand what the truth is here, and I think we can unravel this by understanding this principle here of the general rule and then the exception. And I think in the Luke passage where Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and, commit, and marries another woman commits adultery, that's the general rule. And then there's this exception in Matthew 5.32 where he says, 
anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, then we have an exception. And let me give you an example here that perhaps you can relate to. We drive from here to Coleraine. The speed limit is 65. 65. You can go a little faster, Bill. No problem. <laughs> it's 65 between here. Now, that's the general rule, right? And when I drive over there, I can go 65. Bill goes 60. I pass him. We're both happy. We're both legal, right? No problem. Six does that mean that no one can ever go faster than 65? No, no way, no how, never. How about someone responding to an emergency, uh, an official? How about a fire truck? How about the sheriff's patrol? They're responding to a, a bank robbery in Coleraine or a fire in Coleraine. They can go faster than 65, right? How about if there's a... How about if it's uh, middle of the winter and there's a foot of snow on the ground and uh, Bob has not yet been out to plow and you're going 65 and you lose control and you cross the median and you cause an accident, you could be cited for driving too fast for conditions, right? And so there are exceptions all the time to the general rule and I think that's what we're looking at here in these passages on divorce, the general rule is no, we aren't talking no-fault divorce here. That is, that is not acceptable to God. And unfortunately, in, in fact, it, it's unfortunate that in Minnesota we live in a no-fault divorce state. Did you know that? You can get a divorce just because you got tired of being married. No questions asked. You know, you, you can get a divorce. You know, that is not in God's program here. And I think that's what the Luke passage is referring to. The exception here, again, it's important to look at the Greek, where in Matthew 5.32 he says, I tell you, anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. And then he goes on with the adultery part. The, uh, the word used here, except for porneia. Porneia is the Greek word used. No one should divorce his wife except for porneia. And that is a word that includes all broadly any sexually illicit sin that is occurring. So it could be adultery. It could be pornography. It could be any other uh, sexually oriented sinful activity that is in a person's life. <clears throat> By the way, pornography is a very serious sin, and it's a very prevalent sin, and I, although I don't know names of individuals, I want to be clear about that. For a group this size here this morning, there are men here who are in a very real struggle with pornography. And if you're a married man and you're struggling with pornography, you're putting your marriage at risk. There, there is a lie that most people who are uh, into pornography believe that I'm not hurting anyone. You know, this is just a private thing. It's, I'm telling you, you're putting your marriage on the line. And divorce may be in your future if you continue in that sin. That's how serious this is. 
Uh, why is this pornea so bad that divorce is allowed here? Why is this, why is this particular thing so bad that Jesus even gives it as an exception? Well, we've already answered that question. Remember, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Here we have a man and a woman who are committed to each other. They, are, they have the most intimate relationship that is meant to last a lifetime. And there's nothing else like it. And it is portraying to the world this imagery of Christ and the church. And, and you're going to allow illicit sexual sin into that picture? You know, that picture has been destroyed if that's what's being allowed. And as a result, Jesus is saying here that this sexual immorality is so bad that, you know, divorce is really an option if that's, if that's the case. You know, that should really highlight in our minds, you know, the importance of, of purity in marriage and faithfulness. And, I mean, think about it. Christ and the church... You know, are, are we thinking that Christ is going to abandon the church for another idea, another plan? No. You know, we have great confidence that he has established his church and we are fulfilling his plan for the ages by being here, right? It's not like he's going to abandon us. Well, that, that's what's happening with this unfaithfulness in marriage when it occurs. So I hope you're getting the picture of how serious this is and and why this, this one exception, this pornea, the Lord has allowed this to, to really uh, be the undoing of really the most sacred of, of relationships that he designed here. Um, so I am telling you here that there is a legitimate reason for divorce in Scripture, and that is pornea this illicit sexual activity. There's one additional reason Scripture gives us when divorce is allowed. You can turn over there if you want. Paul gives us this one in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you if you want to go that route. 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 10, says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate for her, from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that any brother who has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And then it talks about the children. But notice here, being married to an unbeliever, husband or wife, is not a legitimate reason for divorce. So scratch that one off of your list if you're keeping track. Verse 15, But if the believing partner separates, so let it be. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And in verse 15, I believe we're given an additional reason when divorce is allowed. 
different translations there say uh, where it says not enslaved, um, not bound, not under obligation. And we can understand that to say not required to stay married or free to divorce. And really what this verse is speaking of is abandonment. Abandonment. In verse 15 where it says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, if this person goes out of the picture. So in the case of abandonment, the Lord has provided another option here for a person that is in that terrible predicament. And the question arises, well, what constitutes abandonment? What are we talking about here? Obviously, this would include physically gone. Somebody just leaves. You wake up one day and they're gone. Never to be seen again. I mean, obviously abandonment, right? But it could include other ways of being abandoned too, even such things as emotionally. Uh, I believe it includes things like failure in being the provider and protector. Remember, husbands, speaking of men here, being the provider and protector is what God has called you to be. And so an example would be um, you're providing for your family, providing food and shelter. If you take the uh, rent money and you squander it at the casino and your family can't pay the rent, uh, there is a real sense here in which you have abandoned being the provider of the family. Or in the, the terrible case where there is physical abuse in the family, the husband is beating up the wife, uh, protector, come on. Men, we're called to be the protector. If you are, have transitioned into being the abuser of your wife, there, there is serious grounds here for dissolution of that marriage. So um, this can be uh, any way in which the husband or the wife is failing to fulfill their obligations in that marriage, which we have already talked about. And there are many, many uh, considerations here, and, and really um, sometimes it's very difficult to unravel what's going on. So I think that there are two biblical reasons here for divorce. One is abandonment. The other is pornea. And when those are in play, uh, this picture of Christ in the church is really put in serious jeopardy. Now, this is a very, very, very serious thing. So I want to want to lay out here some considerations related to a biblical understanding of divorce when these two cases are in play. First of all, there is a pattern of ongoing unrepentant sin. There is a pattern here in a person's life. This is not a one-time thing and, oops, I saw that happened. I'm, you know, on my way to a divorce. You see, the reality is that uh, if you are married, you married a sinner. That's half of the bad news. The other half of the bad news is that you married a sinner. Every marriage is composed of two sinners. We aren't, we aren't talking about perfection here day in and day out. But when there's a pattern 
of unrepentant sin. In other words, somebody has decided they love their sin more than they love Christ, and they're going to continue in their sin, then we have a problem. Then we have a problem. Forgiveness always characterizes Christians, though, but when there's ongoing unrepentant sin, then we're headed down a road with a, a bad ending. Another consideration is that divorce is never the first option. You want to be, if this applies to you, you want to be seeking some godly counsel here. You want other Christians addressing the sin in a person's life. You want to, first of all, go on a rescue mission for the marriage before you jump to divorce as the option. Remember that uh, divorce destroys the picture of Christ and the church and really it should only happen when really the picture of Christ and the church in your marriage has already been destroyed by the behavior that's occurring, the unrepentant sin. And remember, there, there is nothing hidden from God. You might think you're, you're hiding you know, pornography, for instance. You know, it's, it's something very private. Nobody will find out. I'm not hurting anybody. What, you think you're fooling God? God knows what's going on. You think he's pleased with that? Another consideration and a reality is that if you proceed down the road of divorce, it will be the most difficult thing you ever go through, and there are no winners in a divorce. There are no winners. But in a, in a sinful world filled with sinful people, sometimes it may be the best of options. In fact, God has provided these two exceptions the pornea and the abandonment, because we live in a sinful world and we are sinners and we have all married sinners. And when a person has decided that they love their sin more than they love the world, the sin then manifests itself by making the sinner very stupid. And sinners do stupid things when they are embracing their sin. So marriage was never intended to result in a person being stuck, and sometimes a person feels stuck when they are faced with pornea or the abandonment that we've talked about. And that's never what the Lord intended, so he has provided these exceptions. But obviously, very, very serious, something that you, you want to get godly counsel here and try to rescue the marriage if at all possible before proceeding down this road. Well, these are very real life issues, but scripture is sufficient. I want to remind you of that. And we're not left to stumble through life aimlessly wondering, well, what do I do now? Because scripture gives us guidance. Now, what I have talked about here this morning is truly a very uh, serious and gnarly issue of life. I want to encourage you very strongly to decide where you stand and what you believe regarding divorce and remarriage before it becomes personal. Um, before it hits close to home, understand your position as you understand scripture. I would take, uh, uh, borrow a line from Mr. Zarin this morning. I've laid out for you what I believe scripture says this morning. 
Uh, if you can build a case on scripture and believe something else, I'll respect that even though you're wrong. <laughs> but, but that's okay. The important thing is that you have a scriptural basis for what you believe, and you need to do that um, now. You need to do that right now. Decide where you stand. Study this out for yourself and make a decision. Well, what happens if you wait? Why, why am I pushing you to, to understand where you stand now? The reason is, when this becomes a personal thing, either in your family, your children, someone who's close to you, a relative, a friend, a neighbor, then your emotions will become part of the process and you will land in the wrong place because your emotions are unreliable. You need to objectively look at scripture and decide where you stand. I wanna give you an example of when this happened Many years ago, Julie and I were part of a, a church that, uh, a church denomination that had um, broader governance in place. In other words, they had a, like a regional council. And the, the regional council obviously had a number of churches under it, including the church we were in. And uh, the president of this regional council, who was a pastor of a church, um, they all adhered to the permanence view regarding marriage. In other words, no divorce, no way, no circumstances, anyhow. Then all of a sudden, the president of this council came out one day and said, well, I, I, I've changed my mind. Now I understand there are situations where divorce is okay. What, what's going on? Well, guess what? His adult daughter, who had been married was now getting a divorce. And so he changed his biblical, his biblical view to now allow divorce. And you can see that obviously there were emotions evolved there, right? And he may have ended up with a more correctly biblical view, but just the way that he got there and why he changed his view, I mean, the, the Lord deserves better than that, right? That's why we need to decide now where we are, look objectively at Scripture, decide really where we stand, and let Scripture guide our lives. Well, I trust this has been helpful this morning, thinking about marriage, looking at the biblical pattern for marriage, this mutual submission, and how that plays out in our lives and we must let scripture speak into our lives if we are going to have clear direction, even when difficult issues come, right? And I, I hope this has been helpful in getting us think that, thinking that direction. And so I, I just pray for all of us that um, the Bible would direct our lives. It is sufficient. We don't need any, any outside help in understanding how to handle these issues. Please stand. I'm going to close in prayer and we'll be dismissed for the morning. Father, thank you for each person here this morning. Thank you that we could um, understand how you have designed marriage perhaps a little better this morning, that we could understand how uh, passages have been misapplied and we could think more correctly about those. And then the implications, Lord, of difficult issues that come our way. I pray that this is helpful and encouraging to people 
and will just help us um, think through things correctly. In other words, biblically, as they come into our lives. Lord, left to ourselves, we will go the wrong direction. And I just thank you that we are just not left hanging there, left being stuck, not knowing which way to turn in our lives, but that you are there to help. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.